Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Today, Ross, we are in, what is it, week number three in our Calvinism versus Arminianism series. And that means, let's see, we're going through TULIP. So we did T last week, total depravity. Today, we're on the U. And U stands for unconditional election. So we're going to talk today about this idea of election. And Ross, it's all about choosing. And I, I think just the overall idea here, the overall question is, did did God does God choose us when it comes to salvation, or do we choose Him? Is that oversimplifying it? Well, that's a pretty good handle on it because election doesn't mean, as you said, choosing. And so I think you know both sides have a starting point, and they might end up saying, "Well, the answer is both." But Calvinists would say more. Well, it's really about how what God chooses. Arminianists, Arminians would say more. Well, it's really more about your choice in response to God, and so. It's a big difference when you see it played out. And so that's something that we want to try to make sense out of today. Okay, so last time we we started with Arminians and then we finished with Calvinists. Let's flip it for this one, just so that we're not trying to play favorites here, right, Ross? Mm-hmm, right. So let's talk about the Calvinist understanding of unconditional election. Let me let me read some of this from the article today. And then you kind of help us understand this. Because of our fallen human condition, we are completely dependent on God to initiate salvation for us. Calvinists believe that God did this in eternity past by choosing to save some without any condition, work, or effort on their part. So right now, Ross, a a Calvinist is listening to this saying, amen, amen, you're (laughs) right. That's what I read in scripture. And probably an Arminian would say, whoa, I don't know how I I feel about that. Right, exactly, exactly. Now, the ones that God chooses are often called by a term, they're called the elect, or especially by Calvinists, maybe maybe use the term the elect more than Arminians do. Um, But the idea is that the elect chosen by God then eventually— they are going to be made spiritually alive by the power of the Holy Spirit. We talked uh, last time about total depravity and about how human beings are completely uh, broken and have no, nothing within them that can cause them to be saved. And so Calvinists take that very seriously and say, well, if they're dead in trespasses and sins, it's going to take an act of God. And so God chooses the ones that he's going to actually make spiritually alive by the Holy Spirit. And so the result of God's choice is that that person will eventually come to put their faith in Jesus and they'll do so willingly. And so um, God's choice doesn't have anything to do with, we talked last week about free will. And so Arminians are going to say that people have real free will. And so God's choice of them would violate their free will. It makes God very arbitrary to say, well, why does God choose some and not others? Does God just like, oh, you know, playing dice in the universe and and your your role turned out good and my role didn't. Uh, But Calvinists would say, look, we don't always understand what God's thinking. He's so far above us that God chooses people for reasons we don't know or we don't understand. And so really it's the idea of God's sovereignty, that God is in control. And it goes back again to last time we said, uh, Calvinists would say, this is the only thing that takes seriously the total nature of human depravity. Okay, so if I were to say to a Calvinist, that seems really arbitrary. God is just arbitrarily choosing some people um, for salvation, the elect. How would a Calvinist respond to, to that word arbitrary? 
Yeah, Calvinists would say, look, God is in control. God can do whatever he wants to do. And God has purposes. God has his, his will is not always known to us. Or, or the reasons for God doesn't owe us an answer. God doesn't owe us any kind of justification for why he chooses some and not others. And, and, and we'll get to this, maybe we'll talk about this a little bit more later, but the idea is that God didn't have to choose anybody. God didn't have to save anybody because we're all sinful. We all fall short of the glory of God. The Bible made that really clear. And so none of us deserves anything. God's choice is not because we deserve it. And so God could just God could choose to send everybody to hell. But the fact that he saves some, the Calvinists would say, is whether it's arbitrary or not, God is gracious in the fact that he saves some and doesn't completely condemn every human being, although we deserve it. I remember he, hearing a sermon from R.C. Sproul on this, and he was pretty fired up about that word. He said, how dare you call that arbitrary? We can't judge God's choice. It's not for us to know his sovereign you know will his under his to understand the the mind of god the heart of god how dare you presume to call that arbitrary i just always thought that was really interesting because again somebody coming to this for the first time who's never really wrestled with some of these scriptures that that might be one of your first thoughts but but i would say don't prejudge this just yet like really try to wrap your mind around this cuz some of these concepts are more nuanced and of course, we're trying to understand what God's word says, not just what we want to be true. true. And so predestination for some people is hard. This, this concept is hard. You might rail against it. It seems arbitrary or it seems mean even of God. But Ross, predestination is not the worst of it. Some people believe in double predestination. What's that all about? Yeah, so predestination means that God chooses certain people for salvation, and he doesn't choose other people. Now. Double predestination says, no, it goes beyond that. God chooses some people for salvation, but God also chooses other people for condemnation, for damnation. So it's not just that God doesn't choose you, and so you're left out, but it's that actually God does choose you to be left out. And, um, and this, uh, in, my, in my experience, this idea of double predestination, again, it's the emphasis for Calvinists is on the, the sovereignty of God, that God is the absolute king of the whole universe, and he can do whatever he wants, he, that he has absolute rule over everything, and his rule, his rule or his choices cannot really be thwarted by finite beings like us. And so sometimes, some of the Calvinists say, okay, well, that means that God is, is really in charge of who is going to be lost and who is going to be saved. Now that to me, I in my experience, like I said, that's a minority position. Um, that is not not all Calvinists, maybe even the majority of Calvinists, because again, as I said before, God doesn't have to choose people to be lost. People are lost on the basis of our own inherent sinful nature and our own rebellion against God, and so He doesn't choose anybody for damnation. Other Calvinists would say because we're already. Uh, because of our sin, we're already we're already qualified for that, and so we're not condemned because God said, "Oh, you're going to hell." We're condemned because God's justice and God's holiness hold every human being accountable for our sin. And so, like I said earlier, God doesn't have to save anybody. Um, so the fact that God chooses some, so the single predestination is probably then the more uh, predominant position. And it's also, I think it's more biblical because it doesn't put 
the basis of someone's damnation on God's choice, but it puts the basis of someone's damnation on their own inherent sinful nature, which seems more just. But is it just, I mean, some could argue it's just semantics. I mean, if it, if God is sovereign, I mean, doesn't it make sense? I'm just playing devil's advocate here. Doesn't it make sense that that really essentially it is, it, it was, because God could have chosen to save them, to elect them. I guess my question is, what kind of person would emphasize double predestination instead of just the the version you're articulating here that maybe the more commonly accepted one what kind of person would double down on predestination i guess is my question well i don't know i think see i don't i've never talked to the person who holds double predestination at this level of you know querying mm-hmm. their perspective but i but my hunch is that it probably they probably say look god is glorified by mm-hmm. his justice god is glorified by um you know his sovereignty his rule over creation and so, again, how do, like you said earlier from R.C. Sproul, how, do, how can we know the mind of God? How can we tell God that that's, you know, that, that he's wrong to do that, if that's what the Bible actually says? And, um, and, and it, you know, there's some biblical uh, verses here and there that people could hang this doctrine on. I don't think it's the whole tenor of Scripture, but it's not, it's not completely unscriptural for this to be thought of at least that's why it's even on the on the page because there's some toehold there okay ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 one of my favorite passages in the bible so clear about salvation ross help us to understand this then through the lens of uh divine election unconditional election it says god saved you by his grace when you believed and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done, so none of us can boast about it. So how would a Calvinist then um, understand this passage? Yeah, so I think um, thinking about this, the question that arises, what is the nature of faith? Is Does faith become a good work? Or I think Arminians would say no. I think Arminians would say no. It's simply a response to God's grace. But why why do some have faith and some not? Is there something inherently in me that allows me to have faith or some reason I have faith and you don't have faith? Is there something, and if there is, if there's something in me that says, oh, maybe I've got more understanding or I have a, a heart that's more inclined or or maybe somehow I connect the dots in a way that you don't, then I have faith and you don't have faith. Well, then, then a, in some sense, that is, creates a sense of merit in me. I have it, you don't. And so, and so the idea here is that then it, it could be some, something I could boast about. It's something that is inherent in me and not outside of me or not just completely a pure gift from God that God gives to some and not others. If there's something inherent in me that dictates that I would be able to have faith or I'd be somehow willing to have faith, then if it's something that you don't have, then salvation becomes rooted in something meritorious about me or something unique or special about me. And so it's not, um, it's not, it's not something that I can't take any credit for or that I can't boast about. Uh, then it becomes a reward in some sense for something good about me that you don't have. If, I, if it's something good about me is faith, then salvation becomes a reward in a sense. And that's contrary. Calvinists would say that's contrary to um, Ephesians chapter two. Now we'll get to some more 
scriptures here in a second in our speed round. I want to do this for both the Calvinist view and the Arminian view. But but before we get to those verses, Ross, one, one more question, just when it comes to understanding unconditional election and maybe the the corollaries to it, some some people would say, okay, so then why would a Calvinist evangelize? If 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 God elects people, then why would a Calvinist even share his or her faith with somebody? Yeah, that's a great question because if you think historically, back in the in the end of the 1700s, William Carey became the first missionary <clears throat> to go overseas, overseas from the English speaking world to go. He went to India. And um, he started a a group that you know kind of got together to to support missions. But the attitude, and he was in a Calvinistic sort of denomination, and the attitude among people around them, uh, him, he had to fight uphill because because people in his in his community were saying, "Look, if God wants to save the heathen, he can do that if he wants to." Um, why are you trying to get people out there and get involved and so forth? Because, you know, it's up to God and, and he can do it with you or without you. And um, so the Calvinist approach was, was saying no to world missions. And that's a, mis- a misunderstanding because, because the Bible teaches from a Calvinist point of view, the Bible teaches that God uses means to achieve his ends, that God uses the preaching of the gospel to gather the elect. And so... Um, the thing is like, oh, so the, the, the Calvinist, hyper-Calvinist, maybe you might say, well, look, I, why, should I need, why should I go share my faith? Because God's going to choose the elect anyway. But God says, no, I'm going to use your preaching of, of the gospel. I'm going to use your, your efforts. I'm going to use your evangelism to draw the elect to me. And, and so it's not like, oh, if you don't do it, I can't save that person. But God says, this is how I'm going to save them. And so when it comes to evangelism, somebody likened it like to fishing. Uh, well, Jesus said, I'll make you fishers of men. But somebody, a friend of mine, made that kind of analogy work better, that I could understand it more. He says, if you're fishing and you don't know if the fish are going to bite, then pretty soon you get discouraged and you know you can keep throwing the line in the water and, you know, man, I hope the fish bite, man. I hope they bite. And that's the Arminian view of toward evangelism, he said, that you could share the gospel and you have no idea whether anybody's ever going to receive it. You have no idea whether anybody's ever going to hear it and, and respond to it. And you hope they do and you pray they do. But, you know, you could go home for the rest of your life. You could be disappointed and never see anybody come to faith. He says, but Calvin, it's because God is at work electing people, choosing people, that there are going, there are going to be some who, in fact, will accept the message. I don't know who they are in advance. Because the preaching of the gospel is going to draw out the elect in God's purpose, but I know that there's going to be some fish who bite, and so uh, it gives me confidence to cast my line in the water. Um, that I know that at some point, as I share the gospel, that somebody's going to say yes because the elect of God, God's working in their in their lives, and it's not up to them; it's up to God. To ultimately, the reason why a person chooses to believe is because. God has given them spiritual life and called them to himself. So I think, to me, the Calvinistic view is more encouraging with respect to evangelism, um, if it's properly understood. Okay, so Ross, you used a term that I don't think we've used yet in the series. You said 
hyper-Calvinist. So let's come back to that at the end. Our listeners are going to have to hold on so that you can define that here at the end. But before we do that, I think it'd be good for us to look at some scripture, some biblical text. I'm going to just throw this out. This is the speed round. I'm going to throw out the text. And then, Ross, I want you to explain why this made the list for a Calvinist when it comes to unconditional election. So Luke 10, verses 21 and 22, my father has entrusted everything to me. No one truly knows the son except the father, and no one truly knows the father except the son and those to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Yeah, the implication of that verse, Jesus is talking there, the implication of that verse is that the son doesn't choose to reveal the father to everyone, that there's a select group to whom the son chooses to reveal the father. Okay, John 5, 21, for just as, this is Jesus again, for just as the Father gives life to those he raises from the dead, so the Son gives life to anyone he wants. Yeah, so Jesus again is talking about his choice is determinative. It's not, it's not the Son gives life to anyone who chooses him, but the Son gives life not to anyone who wants it, although it ends up being true that if you're chosen by God, you want it. But he said, the son gives life. Look, I'm going to decide who the son gives life to, he's saying. And it's not your choice. It's my choice, ultimately. Yeah, this next one's a big one. John 6, 44. For no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them to me. Right. And so, again, there's an idea that, that there are some who come. They come because they're drawn. And that the idea, and this could cut both ways to say that, well, the father's drawing everyone. To, toward salvation. Um, and that, that could be the Arminian perspective on this. But in Jesus' perspective, uh, Calvinists would say that um, there is a, def- a definitive connection between coming to the Father and being drawn by the Father. Okay, so those were from the Gospels. Those were Jesus himself. Now, this next one is from Acts. This is, you know, the, and now we're getting into the practical, you know, um, the gospel goes out, the church starts to be built up, and it says in Acts 13, 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they were very glad and thanked the Lord for his message. So it's a bunch of Gentiles heard the gospel for the first time. And then it says this, and all who were chosen for eternal life became believers. Yeah, to me, this is one of the most clear statements of what the Calvinists are trying to uh, put forth, and because it seems to be a simple cause and effect relationship. Chosen for eternal life, then you become a believer. If you're chosen, first it says that the choosing, that God does do choosing for, he doesn't choose everyone for eternal life because not everybody became a believer. And so there is a, there's two things here. One is the choice of God. One is the effect of that choice, that, that it, it, it's effective. It's, it, it really works. It happens in the person's life. It was chosen for eternal life. And so Calvinists love uh, Acts 13, 48. Yeah, we're going to have to come back. To, after we explain the Arminian viewpoint, we're going to have to come back to this one and talk about how, okay, how would an Arminian view this? But we'll save that for the end. A couple more passages for now. Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Christ Jesus. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. Russ, this seems like another big one that a Calvinist is going to say, how could you not believe this viewpoint? 
Right. And again, yeah, this is Ephesians 1 is all about God's action on our behalf. It talks about chosen before before the foundation of the world and 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 so forth. So, um, yeah, the Calvinists would say that God chose us for what purpose? To be holy. God decided in advance, in other words, predestined um, to adopt us into it. So the, the Calvinists say this is individual. The Arminian would probably say, no, this is talking about groups of people, that God chose the church in advance, kind of like the analogy of, well, I will get to it in a minute, but God chose Israel as a whole. He didn't necessarily choose the individuals particularly, but he chose Israel as a whole to belong to him. So the question here in Ephesians 1 is, is this a particular choice of God, and um, or is it a generic kind of all-encompassing choice Um of God choosing more than individuals, but peoples. Okay, one more for the Calvinist um, list of scriptures that supports unconditional election from their viewpoint. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 and 14. As for us, we can't help but thank God for you, dear brothers and sisters loved by the Lord. We're always thankful that God chose you to be among the first to experience salvation, a salvation that came through the Spirit who makes you holy and through your belief in the truth. Yeah, so again, um, there's going to be some difference in how to understand this. But again, this emphasizes God's action and God's ch- choosing. And in other words, God takes the initiative. God chooses you to be among the, those who experience salvation. Um, the salvation came through the Spirit. And here's the person. It talks about your belief in the truth. Um, it, it came through God's choosing and through your belief. Um, And so the Calvinist is going to say there's a clear link between those two things. Okay, now some of our listeners are who maybe who are new to this topic are going to stop right here and say, okay, we're halfway through this episode, and I can't see how there's another option. It seems obvious from these scriptures. Probably a lot of people are going to say that. Could there be another? It seems clear enough that unconditional election must be a thing. But we would say to that, hold on. Hold on, there is another side to this because the Arminians believe in something called conditional election. And so, Ross, explain what that is and how in the world could they come up with another option given these verses we just looked at? Well, there's plenty of other passages in the Bible that talk, that show people choosing. And so, the question is how do you connect or, or relate God's choosing and human choosing? Because both of them are, are, are seen as realities in Scripture. And so Arminians uh, will, will emphasize, okay, the human choice um, is, the, is really important and, and it's determinative. And they'll also emphasize that um, the limitation part. So, okay, limited uh, unconditional election creates, uh, or rather condi- uh, unconditional election creates a certain limited number of people. And the Arminians will say, we'll see that, well, God really wants everyone to be saved. And so why does, it just seems to be contrary to the idea that God's going to choose just some when Bible says that God wants everyone to be saved. So what's the nature of that human choice in light of God's choice? And how does that all work together? And those are the two perspectives. And so a Calvinist would say election is unconditional. It it has nothing to do at, it is not conditioned at all upon anything um, that the human can do. 
Whereas an Arminian would say, no, it is conditional on faith mm-hmm. that that God's election. So this is interesting, Ross, because both Calvinists and Arminians would use the term election. Both right. of them are going to use the term predestination because you have to, because the concept is in scripture. So it's not like the Arminians can just say those aren't real things. They have to deal with those words. But the way that they deal with those words is to say election is conditioned on faith in Christ. So there is there is something that a human can do, and that has to do with faith. And for a Calvinist, they would say, no way. A human can do nothing. Have I summarized that well? Yeah, for sure. And I think it's important to understand when we qualify that idea of con- of conditional, that it's not based on, Arminian would say, look, it's not, it doesn't violate scripture because it's not based on our good works. It's not based on, the condition is not that we're meritorious or that we're better than other people. Um, you know, although, you know, Calvinists would say, well, maybe there's something there where you're saying that, but Arminius would definitely say, no, it's not based on any worthiness or obedience um, or keeping the law or whatever on the part of the person. It's based simply on um, receiving what God has provided. And so um, that's that's how the, the condition is faith, simple faith or simple acceptance of the of the gospel. So how does the idea of foreknowledge come into play for an Arminian? Because we haven't used this word yet. When we talk about predestination for a Calvinist, we don't have to talk about anything but predestination. But for a, an Arminian, the concept of foreknowledge is really important. So help us to understand this concept and how an Arminian views this. Right, because because the New Testament, <clears throat> the Bible even as a whole, does talk about God acting in advance. And so something about God before the foundation of the earth, the world, as Ephesians chapter 1 talks about. And so there has to be some way for the Arminian who wants to put an emphasis on on human free will and human response to really understand and try to explain what is this sort of thing that's going on with God acting in advance. And so God exists outside of time and he knows as an infinite eternal being, he sees everything, you know, all in his, 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 in his current present tense. So God can know in advance from a human perspective, we'd say in advance, God knows who is going to choose, who is going to believe, who's going to act on, uh, exercise their human free will. And so God says, then, those are the ones that I choose. Those are the ones that I call elect because I I know in advance. And so in advance, before the foundation of the earth, before everything, anything happened, before that person ever made a choice, I know they're going to make a choice. And so that person is my elect. I'm not choosing individually, but I am, I am in a sense choosing, God says, on the basis of what I know will happen in the future. Yeah, it's interesting. In week number one, we talked about, of the series, we talked about the history behind this and that the Arminian theologians put forward these five articles of remonstrance in 1610 to, to suggest cor- these corrections to, to Calvinism. And I think probably our listeners will be surprised to hear that Arminius in Article 1, he he said that predestination is the foundation of Christianity. I think people might say, well, that sounds like a Calvinist thing to say. But no, actually, Arminius said that as well, that predestination is the foundation of Christianity. 
So here's what he believed. Let me read this, Ross, and you can help explain this. Arminians believe that predestination is God's purpose before the foundation of the world to save believers in Christ and to condemn unbelievers outside of Christ. Again, when I read that, that sounds like a Calvinist statement, but it all depends on whether you believe that predestination or election is conditioned upon faith or is unconditional and just conditioned upon God's sovereign choice. Right. So the idea of predestination for the Arminians is a sense that God is working a plan. God planned it all in the in, in the very beginning, and he predestined that, let's put it this way, that, that some would be saved. But he didn't predestine particular persons to be saved, but he predestined the, the general plan or purpose that, that he was going to save those who believe in Christ, and those who don't would be condemned. That's, and he decided that long, long ago. Uh, apart from any merit or worth on the part of, of of human beings. Yeah, and that word you used is important. We'll come back to that, I think, next week, where you said particular. He didn't predestine particular people to be saved. He predestined some to be saved. And I, I think we're beginning to now understand how an Arminian would handle some of those passages that we looked at earlier in the episode. But before we get to some of our own passages and our speed round for the Arminians, Ross, talk us through this idea of corporate election. You already alluded to it, but what is what does corporate election mean then for an Arminian? Yeah, so they, they go back and Arminian that I've read would go back to how God chose Israel. It's clear that God says to Israel, I chose you from among all the nations of you, not because you were the biggest or the greatest or the strongest, but I chose you because I wanted to. I chose you because I wanted to to save you and make you my people. But um, so so the idea of corporate election is that God elects to salvation the church as a whole, as a group, um, and it it embraces individuals based on their response, as we've said before, that they become members of that group based on their faith in Jesus. Um, just as people in the old covenant were chosen because they were born to be in the lineage of Jacob or Israel, uh, God's people in the new covenant are chosen because they become into the lineage of Christ by faith. And so the idea of corporate election, again, is it's not individual or personal, particular, but it's a, it's the group that he's talking about. It's the, the larger sense of, I chose the church to belong to me. Okay, so let's hit some Bible passages that an Arminian would probably emphasize. And these are the passages that stress, you know, God's desire to save everybody. And and it'll stress this idea that faith is a human cause of salvation. So John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they're not, they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So again, this one seems obvious. Okay, look, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. That just really seems to align with the Arminian perspective. Right, because the emphasis in, this, in these verses is on that human response. And so the Arminian would say, look, see, it says whoever believes. And so it seems wide open, right? It seems like an open invitation, not to, not just saying you know, whoever's chosen and therefore believes. The Calvinists would say, well, there's a reason why you believe. It's because God chose you first. 
And the Armenian would say, no, this is open-ended. It says whoever, and that would be their response. Romans 10, verses 9 through 13, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. So an Armenian is looking at this and saying, look, it sure does seem like you're, you're expressing your faith in a definitive way, and God is responding to that. Is that, about, is that how a, our, an Armenian would view that? Right. So the idea that it's conditional election, and so Romans 10 uses the word if. And so if is a, is a condition. And so they're saying, here's the condition. It's spelled out in Scripture very clearly. If this, then this is the result. So how would a Calvinist respond to that wordplay on the word if? What would they say to that? Yeah, I think the way I would understand it is I, I think the Calvinist would say, look, there's a reason. He said, they say this is true, but there's an underlying reason, kind of reading between the lines or reading from the larger biblical perspective, they would say, there's an underlying reason why a person would ever declare with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart. The reason is because, because God has made that person who was dead, made them alive, so it is possible for them to do that. And by God's calling and choosing, then um, it, it makes it so that they will do that. So I think that's, I think the Calvinists would look about, look like, well, what's happening behind the scenes of this? The Arminian would say, well, there's no behind the scenes. This is just mm. it. Okay. So speaking of behind the scenes, Romans 8, 29 introduces the, these two concepts we were, we're talking about, predestination and foreknowledge, and it puts it all nice and tidy into one verse. Here's what it says. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So this is one that, you know, we have that concept of predestination, but because we have the foreknowledge word in there, uh, I'm sure Arminians really love this one. Right, because it does seem to imply a certain causation or a certain order of the way things happen. It says God foreknew them, and kind of then it says, well, then that's the ones he predestined. Those God foreknew, there's a certain group that God predestined. And here's the reason why he predestined them, not because of just his uh, mysterious will that we can't possibly understand. The Arminian would say, here, we can understand because here's why God predestined them, because God foreknew them. God, God knew what's going to happen. So then how would a Calvinist handle the word foreknew? Yeah, they would. they would say, I think they would say, that in the larger context of this verse, it says God called them, God chose them, and then it talks about foreknew them and predestined them. So they'd say, oh, there's other things going on in this verse that that hint at at the Calvinist perspective, that hint at the un, uh, the unconditional um, election. And they would say uh, God foreknew, of course God foreknew, but it's not a because, it's just a simply saying, okay, yes, here, here's kind of like... Um, it's a different, in other words, it's a different relationship between these two words, these two concepts that they would see. Okay, First Timothy 2, 3 through 4, it says, This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So I can see how an Arminian is saying, look, God wants everyone to be saved. So it, it seems to be pointing to the fact that um, it's not so much his 
his um, decision beforehand to predestine some and not others. So an Arminian, an Arminian to me would really hold on to this verse. How would a Calvinist explain this one in terms of their not just single, obviously double predestination, that would be hard, but even single predestination, how would a Calvinist deal with this? Yeah. So to me, this is uh, where one of the areas, this is a tough verse for Calvinists in my mind. Now, the Calvinists would say, well, look, um, God wants all people to save. Well, he would he would say there's a difference between different kinds of God's will, that God's will is, um, I, I can't remember the terminology that they use, Permiss- his permissive will versus his um, sovereign, active, what God that's going to actually make happen. So God doesn't, if God wanted all people to be saved in that sense, he would just do that. Um, but but they would say there's, so there's different kinds of God's will and there's different, um, we're thinking about God's will in different ways to answer this verse. Um, I, t- it seems like maybe I don't understand it well enough, but it doesn't seem as quite as compelling as, as, some, as some of the other verses that Calvinists might use. Okay, 2 Thessalonians 2.13 at face value sounds like a verse a Calvinist would use, but it showed up in our Arminian list, and I want you to explain why. Here's the verse. But we ought to always thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as firstfruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. Why did this show up in the Arminian list, not the Calvinist list? I think so because it, because it implies uh, conditionality. So God chose you, how? He chose you to be saved through these other means, but also this idea of belief. Belief comes up here and shows this link or this relationship between God's choosing and people's, and the the culmination of that uh, being applied by someone believing uh, in the gospel and the truth. Okay, two more passages. First Peter 1, verses 1 and 2. To God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of all these places, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. So this is Peter, finally. So far, we've looked at a lot of Paul's. We've looked at Jesus and Paul, and now Peter is talking about God's choosing that he's using the word foreknowledge. Right. And not only that, he says you, you've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. In other words, there's some kind of a causative relationship is what they would say. Um, and so this is why God, this is how God chooses or why God chooses some, uh, because it's according to his foreknowledge. And so I think that would be um, the way they would play that. So that was First Peter. And then in Second Peter 3, 9, he writes, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So again, this is one that a, that a, a Calvinist might have a hard time with, Ross. Yeah, because the, idea is, because the idea of God's sovereignty is that God can accomplish what he wants. And so the idea of conditional... Um, election suggests that God wants something, but he doesn't will it in a sense. That God might want it, but, but, but somehow there's forces that could thwart God's desire in that sense. Uh, if people don't come to repentance, then God's desire for them to be saved is thwarted. And so there, there's a sense of what the sovereignty of God 
you know, really means and how it applies. Let's go back to Acts 13.48. Again, this seemed to be really supporting the Calvinist perspective of unlimited atonement. So help us to understand this through the eyes of an Arminian. It, was, it said this, when the Gentiles heard the gospel, they were very glad and thanked the Lord for his message. And all who were chosen for eternal life became believers. How would an Arminian interpret that? Well, as I understand it, again, and I, I, Armenia is going to be frustrated with my explanation. They have a better explanation because they, they really own this. They would own this. But um, all who were chosen for eternal life became believers. I, would, I think they would, they would probably look at chosen through the lens of, okay, we're talking about foreknowledge there, or, or the idea that it's some kind of a different kind of choosing to say, boom, God says, no, you, boom, you're a believer, boom, you're a believer. And so I think they would soften it a little bit by appealing to their overall view and their overall perspective, saying that, that God would not want anyone to be to perish. And so there's got to be something going on there that um, gets interpreted in light of this larger perspective of their, des- their idea of God's desire to offer salvation to everyone. Now, Ross, what, you know, we read a lot of passages here, and you know, we've already said in this series that there are genuine believers on both sides of this debate. I think it's important for us to say that again. This is, there's not one heretical viewpoint and one non-heretical viewpoint. And I think all of our listeners should recognize that. I think it's important to recognize that, that we, whenever we deal with gray areas that we say, hey, I might be wrong here. I'm exploring this. I'm trying to understand this, but I might be wrong. The problem I have, Ross, is when people are so dogmatic about it that it makes it the person on the other side of the aisle feel like they're they're wrong or they're not seeing it right or they're less than. So I'll, I'll put that out there, first of all. But I guess my other question is, looking at all this scripture, like did, did Peter, did Paul, did Jesus have a particular viewpoint in mind when they were writing this? Well, I think that people in the different camps would say, well, sure. <laughs> That that there is a, there is some kind of an absolute truth. We're not saying there's not a, there's not some absolute truth. We're we're just we're not saying that truth doesn't matter, and you can just kind of figure out whatever you want or whatever you think, uh, however you want to interpret the Bible. But the the challenge is for us is that is that in this issue, God does talk about His sovereignty, and God does it talk does talk the Bible does talk about how God. Um, causes people's to make certain decisions or God does what he wants to do, but he does it through people's decisions. So there, there are both sides, the human choice and God's choice. I think a great example of that is in Acts chapter two, where Peter's preaching um, the day of Pentecost, Peter's preaching. He, he says, he says, he's talking about the death of Jesus. And he says, um, you got, he said that you, some of you were involved in, his death, your choices. God talks about, or he talks about evil people or wicked people brought about the death. But he also says, which God willed in advance. God planted. So it's not like, well, God, God said Jesus is going to die for our salvation. And God isn't just going like, oh man, I hope, you know, I hope it works out. You know, I hope people don't mess up, even though people made choices and were held accountable for the Judas is held accountable for, for um, betraying Jesus. Um, and so people made real choices. They're held accountable for their choices. But at the same time, it was God's choice. Jesus went to the cross on purpose. And so God's will was not thwarted. 
but somehow God works through human choices to accomplish his choices. And so we're all trying to figure out what's the relationship between those two and how does it work in terms of our salvation? And so really, it's not like the Bible is contradictory or that we can just pick one or the other, whatever we want. We're, tr- we're all trying to figure out how to take the biblical truth that, that is sometimes beyond our comprehension and be faithful um, to it. And so giving each other some slack on that, again, I want to try to figure it out. And I, and I think Calvinists and Arminians both believe that they, they understand the truth in the best possible way. And that so they're you know they're right and and others are not right, but there's a grace involved in it there because the Bible does emphasize both of those and it never and it never sets out to to put them all together and and to figure it all out and so that's where we we give each other some grace. All right, I promised earlier in the episode that we would address this word that you introduced, and we'll probably talk about it more in other episodes. But you mentioned hy- hyper Calvinist. What is a hyper-Calvinist, and how is that different from just your stock Calvinist? So the, sometimes people are called that. It's a kind of a class of people that have been arisen. I don't know if hyper-Calvinists would call themselves that. So maybe how other people view Calvinists who seem to take the logical consequences of the system of Calvinism and take them to the extreme. or or t- So not always necessarily there's a biblical perspective, but there's always a sense, oh, this is the system. It makes sense. It's coherent. It's logical. And so here's another logical piece that makes sense in light of the system and and starting to move in that direction and say, okay, so it becomes, there's some extremes. It feels like to the general population that there's some extremes there. And there are some people who, who say, okay, this is goes beyond what, what seems like makes sense scripturally, but it's going to be something that is uh, is really held only maybe by a few people, or maybe held in a way that is um, really maybe not as gracious or or not as open to perspective. It seems maybe maybe making maybe making major issues out of what seem to be minor points. I don't know. That's how I would look at it. So, would a single predestination Calvinist call a double predestination Calvinist a hyper Calvinist? Oh, maybe. Maybe not necessarily. I think I think hyper Calvinists get glossed that way, maybe because sometimes of attitude. Um, you know, that you you pointed out earlier that we can get like an attitude of um, we're right, nobody else has is a clue. There's secondary, you know, like you're an inferior believer, or, or what's wrong with you, kind of thing. And I think hyper Calvinists might be known because they have that dogmatic sort of aggressive perspective toward others. All right. Well, that's lesson three in our series, Divine Election. Again, if you want to talk about this with your family or your small group or your mentor, you can find all of it online, pursuegod.org.